Yahoo! 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 Welcome to Yell Parks Pod, the number one podcast for yelling about parks. We are your hosts. I am Ellery. I use they, them pronouns. I'm Nick. I use they, them. And I'm Ola, and I use uh, they, them, or em pronouns. So, we are Yell Parks Pods. Yeah? What is this? Why are we doing it? Well, to answer your question, well, we all met through Blaseball, right? That's mm-hmm. probably anyone who's listening to this very first episode, y'all probably know us through Blaseball as well. But we were all fans of the Yellowstone Magic team. Yeah. Yeah, and for context, for those of you who are maybe listening back and don't know what that is, um, or our family friends that for some reason are being sent this <laughs> and are forced to listen to it, Blaseball is an internet baseball simulator that has a lot of horror themes. It's very fun. It's very community driven. Um, and Yellowstone Magic is one of the teams in the game that is based in Yellowstone National Park. Right. So because we all picked this team, we're all people who like parks and nature and that sort of stuff. And we decided to make a a podcast about it because for a lot of reasons. Because why not? Because why not? Yeah. Yeah. We thought it'd be appropriate to do this first episode about the park itself, about Yellowstone. So speaking of Yellowstone. We have three cool topics to cover today. Yeah, let's start with park history. Yeah, so I have totally nerded out a little bit about this in <laughs> the Yellowstone Magic Baseball Discord, but Earth is, like, literally so cool, and, like, nature is so cool, and, like, so I was doing a lot of research today about, like, how did Yellowstone, the park, and the formations, and, like, the geysers and everything, like, how did it actually form? Like, how did it come to be? Because obviously it's this gorgeous nature place that, like, something happened somewhere for this to exist. So as I was looking, you know how, like, everyone says, oh, like, you know, there's the super volcano in Yellowstone that's, like, gonna explode and kill us all? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to, but if we lived, like, so long ago um it would have (laughs) so basically the formation of yellowstone um there were two volcanic volcanic um events that kind of sparked the formation of the park and specifically the yellowstone caldera Mm -hmm. um i hope i'm saying that word right i think so yeah okay cool yeah so it was two specific volcanic events The first one was bigger than the second, but the second one still would have been, like, cataclysmic in today's standards of, like, what we know. Basically, Yellowstone is along certain tectonic plates, which is why we have so much thermal energy and, like, we have the hot springs and we have geysers and we have, you know, the Yellowstone caldera and, like, all these super sick geological forms so with being along those tectonic plates there's just been like a ton of energy over the years plus also yellowstone was part of a mini ice age um it's called like a small ice age from like the 1500s to i think it was like mid 1800s that's wild 
Isn't it? And that's like so recent. Mm-hmm. I like. I figured probably at some point, but also I figured it was like ten thousand years ago or something. That's amazing. Yeah, it's like so cool. So with the Ice Age, mini Ice Age, not the Ice Age, but like the mini one, mm-hmm. like you know, there are various glac- glaciers and water freezes and the water expands and it pushes things apart. And so that is kind of how the whole landscape came together of just like a ton of volcanic activity. Ah, it's so cool. I'm like <laughs> here shaking my hands. But <laughs> we have hot water that I know, Abby, you're going to give much more detail uh, account of geysers. Yes. But it's just so cool. It's so cool. So when you think of Yellowstone National Park, like a lot of people think of it as like, ooh, this untouched wilderness. I know people say like, oh, this is like what nature is like before humans ever touched it. Mm -hmm. Not true. (laughs) Um, Right. Yep. Totally not true. We have artifacts our oldest dated are about 11,000 years old, where we have found like specific obsidian arrowheads. The obsidian is, for those who don't know, it's a volcanic rock and it is formed when magma cools and it's incredibly hard. It can be super sharp when you um, like go chip pieces off. And so going back to 11,000 years, like this was a hot commodity and people, Native Americans were using this specific obsidian all the way back there. Like there have always been Native peoples everywhere. Like, Mm -hmm. And so specifically this obsidian, it's really cool because different magma flows have distinctive chemical makeups so we're actually able to track how far and like different trade routes from people from so long ago and so like this this obsidian like arrowheads and like um, knives and like just hunks of rock like it has been found all throughout the great plains through the rockies as far east as like wisconsin and michigan and ontario and like yeah, people have always been here. Like that's really cool. And I th- I feel like that's something that like whenever we think about national parks specifically, it's always these like th- no one's ever lived here. It's always been nature. And it's just not it's a very harmful myth, I feel like in a lot of ways. Right. And it's yeah. like I think in this podcast because we're park people, we like parks. We're going to mm-hmm. do a lot of the sort of extolling of that sort of trying to preserve the natural area. But I think that it's very important to acknowledge that, like, that's not the pure story of it, right? Like, yeah, like the whole reason that we have the national park is because we've removed the people that were originally living there. Right. And so, like, you know, we we get this beautiful place to visit, but I think it's also important to recognize the history of that place and kind of, like, what all went into it and not just the beautiful aspects, but, like, there's a lot of history there that just doesn't get talked about and it should be talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Like, 
Native Americans and Native peoples who lived in this land, like, were here way longer before, you know, United States existed. And, like, they were the stewards of the land. Like, they hunted the land and, like, they did, like, controlled burns and, like, things that white people and, like, government officials and stuff, like, very much took as, like, no, this is bad for the environment. Yeah. Not the case. It's just... Yeah, it's it's ways that we haven't thought about managing the land, but that have worked for thousands of years. And now, you know, we're running into problems and trying to go back to those methods of managing the land that, like, have been successful for so long. Yeah, right. exactly. I right. mean... In the 80s, there was a huge fire in Yellowstone National Park because, you know, when there are controlled burns, you get to take care of, like, all the leaf litter Mm -hmm. and, like, all the, like, very burnable, flammable material. But if you don't do that, that just kind of builds up. And, like, that's what caused this giant fire. Like, it was devastating. Right. (laughs) Like, there's just... There's a problem with assuming that that people who move in on the land would ever know better or, like, right. would know, like, quote-unquote, the right way of how to take care of it or anything like that. Right. So, speaking of people moving in on the land, when did that happen? What's, how, did, how did it become Yellowstone National Park as opposed to just this part of the land where people had been living and being as people yeah yellowstone is actually the first national park absolutely in north america it's debated the world so it was it became the first national park in 1872 it was signed into being by ulysses s grant is that right was it not roosevelt i thought it was roosevelt uh let me double check that but i do think it is grant let me look yeah, no, on March 1st, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant designated Yellowstone as the first national park in the United States. It feels wrong for that to be a true fact. It does. But I do believe it. It just doesn't feel yeah. right. <laughs> I believe you. I, I just, there's this strong image of Roosevelt and the national parks, and maybe we have to look up where that came from if... If he didn't actually start. Well, because, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is, like, way older, right? He wasn't born until, like, the 1850s or something. Now we're going to have to fact check when Teddy Roosevelt was born. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt lived at some point in American history and was president. And then he died. We're not here for that history. It looks like 1858 he was born. Okay. So you are completely correct. I feel like we're learning so much in this moment <laughs> that we were not expecting to learn. Yeah. This is this is what this podcast is for. It's for the the tangents as well as the yeah. uh, pre-research tracks. He established the Forest Service and created five national parks. Oh, okay. Five okay. national parks. I don't know which five. I guess I had assumed that Yellowstone was one of them, but not. Mm-hmm. It was not. That was way before him. That's still cool. We'll have to. Yeah. I'm sure he will come up 
eventually when we get to other parks. I have to say, I do at least partially think of Teddy Roosevelt as like big, great outdoorsy sort of president. Yeah. Um, largely because of the movie Night at the Museum. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Because like that's his whole role in that movie. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of true that uh, this should be a really big tangent, but like the reason he was so into national parks and stuff was because he was like that sort of outdoorsman he was like a hunter and y'all know the story of like the teddy bear right he was going out bear hunting Mm -hmm. and and he found a bear that i think the story is that there was the the guy he was hunting with or like the guy who was working for him on this hunt had to like shoot it or disable it in some way before he got there to finish it off and he refused to finish it off that's so sad though yeah. Yeah. He was a he was a sporty outdoorsy guy, I guess. Yeah. Well, and and I think he did a lot of, I don't know, maybe a lot is an exaggeration, but I know that like while he was in office, he did a a good bit of uh work with conservation. Yeah. And signing legislation um for like national parks. Um I think probably also monuments that are not national parks that we probably don't need but like establishing the forest service um and and nature preserves and things like that is is at least helpful yeah that's cool yeah should be said also did also did some truly horrible stuff but we're not here to talk about stuff that's unrelated to parks Catch me on Twitter dunking on Teddy Roosevelt being garbage. <laughs> yeah, I need to get off his wiki. Yeah. <laughs> and we we can get back to back to our actual topic of Yellowstone, which is not actually that related to Teddy Roosevelt. It's related to Grant. Nick, did you have other things to share with us about Yellowstone? I mean, it's all very important, but like... Essentially, the park was created, signed in, first national park. It was maintained by the military for a while, which, like... What? Yeah, for, like, a good chunk. Well, because there was no park service. They didn't have anyone else to, like, stop poachers or, like... I guess that makes sense. Yeah, or, like, do terrible things, like, kick natives off their land. But... Yeah, it eventually was taken over um, by the National Park Service, which, thankfully, (laughs) but it's really neat. It's a huge national park. I was looking, I think it's like, oh, I want the actual number. I think it's 4.86 million people went there within the last, in uh, 2021. Like, just super cool. It's, yeah, it's neat. I like it. awesome yeah if that's that's our history segment we can move on to our next segment which is reintroduction of wolves to the park yeah because this is like the big thing i feel like people know about yellowstone right is yeah it's it's definitely a huge and iconic story for the park and in conservation and ecology in general like seeing how ecosystems work 
it's a really uh, a really big story and a really iconic story and a really hopeful story. Yeah, so basically, like we were kind of talking about before in the the history segment, when white people came to uh, this area, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, that's an oversimplification. A story of America. White people showed up and they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Please continue. I'm sorry. There was a... Uh, when people came into this area, there was a big push to hunt wolves and try to get rid of them from the park. And this was, for a lot of reasons, partially to make the area safer for uh, livestock farming, partially to make it safer for guests coming to visit the park, tourists. And so in 1926, the last uh, pack was killed in the park and wolves were basically extinct from the area. They were, they had been hunted to regional extinction. I think there's a, there's a more specific word for when a species is extinct in like a certain area, but not in the world. Um, But I do not know that word. Mm -hmm. And so basically what this caused in the area was there was this huge boom in the population of elk in in the park and that led to a huge decrease in the vegetation that the elk uh eat so butterfly effect sort of thing where like when one thing changes in an ecosystem it's going to affect the whole thing and so basically later on as we started we as in the white people who were managing and the people who were the like government scientists and people Mm -hmm. came to have a better understanding of the ecosystem as it was they decided to try uh reintroducing wolves into the park much later the and this plan actually uh came through in 1995 uh the reintroduction began i suppose they introduced uh gray wolves from jasper alberta in uh from a canadian national park so just eight gray wolves from that area and as kind of like a a test population just to see if they could like survive yellowstone yeah and as as i understand it they started to see the like the effects and the kind of healing of this ecosystem very very quickly like so there's a concept called trophic cascade this is kind of the idea we've been talking about where when you change one level of a food chain when there's something that affects one level of a food chain or a food web it's going to affect the whole the whole food web the whole ecosystem is going to be affected by this and so trophic cascade is kind of the order in which things, in which species affect other species in the ecosystem. And it, it describes that. And so a change in the wolf population totally, totally changed the, the elk population and that changed the vegetation and it changed the, you know, trees and plants. And then in return, like after that, you get like animals that aren't, aren't in this straight line of of what eats what but like there is an effect on grizzly bears and all sorts of other things that lived in the area but yeah overall the i'm sorry i feel like are are y'all able to get a word in no you're good i've been 
I've been nodding the whole time, but I realized that podcasting is not a visual medium and nodding yes, doesn't same. actually help. But yeah, this, it's really cool because like I was also the wolf kid like growing up. And so <laughs> I've always been like fascinated with it because like wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone when I was a kid. And so that it's always been like very cool to hear about it and like hear how things are going and it's helping it's always really neat yeah it's nice to hear that there's a success every once in a while yeah that it's not just like oh this species is extinct add it to the list but it's like hey we're bringing them back and it's helping and they're doing really well Right. Yeah, I think that it's really cool to see a hopeful story in conservation like this. And also, Mm -hmm. like, that's not to say that there are no, there are still, of course, conflicts about wolf conservation in the area, like, especially with people trying to still trying to protect their livestock and their uh, farming and Mm -hmm. uh, safety interests in that area in like the around Montana and Wyoming and right. it is a hopeful story in seeing that like the there is an increased variety of vegetation now there is a widespread recovery of the ecosystem across the whole park since wolves have been reintroduced mm-hmm. that's so cool wolves are so cool they are they're so pretty yeah. That's also the problem is it does look like they're just big dogs and they're not. They are wild animals that can kill you. (laughs) Yeah, not a puppy. Um, Practice responsible uh, park visiting and leave the animals alone. Just leave them alone. Yeah, keep your distance, please. But I mean, it is also a point in their favor in this case that they look like big dogs that they are uh, charismatic they uh, people care about them and their place in the ecosystem and the fact that there are these these charismatic uh, especially mammals charismatic animals that people care about is something that gets talked about a lot in conservation mm-hmm. that uh, where can we find these places that overlap where the creature is charismatic, so people care about it, and also it has this, like, linchpin place in the ecosystem where getting people to care about it and, like, reminding people of it will actually make a huge difference across the ecosystem. So for animals that are maybe less charismatic or, like, plant life that that people are less likely to know about. And that's something that worked really well in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, like, if you just think, like, pandas they're so cute and they have Mm -hmm. great conservation efforts because like you can buy a stuffed little panda (laughs) and it's adorable Mm -hmm. and same thing with wolves it's really cool yeah right is it geyser time it is geyser time Ooh, love a geyser it's geyser time so again for the baseball fans who know me are probably aware that I am a a big fan of geysers. Again, if you're not coming to this from baseball, hi, I'm a really big fan of geysers. (laughs) It's my whole personality. (laughs) So yeah, geysers are one of the like really, really neat geological features that we get from Yellowstone. Um, And a big part of that is the fact that we have this giant caldera just kind of in the middle of the country, and it set up this perfect environment 
for geysers to form. So Yellowstone has about 50% of the world's total geysers. There are geysers in other places that are not Yellowstone, but the vast majority of them are inside the park, which is wild. That is wild. That's a lot. Very wild. And the way that they work, basically, is that because there's these um, magma chambers so close to the surface that they're only a couple miles down, um, there are places where it's only three miles or so below the surface, we have this giant heat source really, really close to the surface of the Earth that we normally don't get. Um, So when you have water underground, it collects basically in these chambers, and then the fault lines that happen, or there will be cracks in the earth, um, that water that's underground gets really, really hot, both like from the sun kind of beating down on it and warming it from the top, but also from that magma bringing heat up from below. And when water gets hot, it expands. And the only place for that water to go is up these tiny cracks. And so they end up like forming paths through the ground. And what's really cool is that like geysers basically reinforce themselves as they erupt. So the way that it works Mm -hmm. is like the water has a lot of silica in it. And as the water goes up these cracks in the earth, Essentially, they're they're often called like plumbing or pipes. Um, and as the water goes up, it deposits that silica, which helps stop the rock from eroding, which helps just kind of like keep the geyser in place. So the water gets really hot. It shoots up out of the earth because it doesn't have anywhere else to go. And then once it's out, it cools off and soaks back into the ground. And it's just, like, this kind of endless cycle of this water being, like, cycled through and, like, erupting and then soaking back into these underground water deposits, getting really hot again, um, which is how you end up getting things like Old Faithful that's, like, super reliable, very easy to predict geyser. That's super cool. Like, wild that this, this kind of stuff just, like, happens. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that it like reinforces itself. That's super neat. And I think this is me speculating. I I think that it mentions this on the Yellowstone website. They have the National Park Service has a lot of really good information about the way that this works, but that's one of the really kind of important features of Yellowstone is this silica Um, So it's, like, present in really high concentrations all around the park. And it actually... I was watching a documentary about Yellowstone a couple months ago. And that, like, it also causes problems um, for some of the wildlife. But in terms of, like, the geysers, it helps to kind of reinforce that plumbing that all of the water goes through. That's really interesting. Speaking of... Which, there was actually a, I found a study from earlier this year that apparently this had been done back in, like, 2016. 
that there were some scientists with a U.S. geological survey that came out to study all of the plumbing of the geysers and the hot springs and all that stuff, because all of those are connected. Or that that's one of the things that they found through this study, is that a lot of these features like share that same underground water source. But basically, what these scientists did was they had an electromagnetic instrument attached to a helicopter and basically used that um, similar to the way that you would use sonar. But instead of using sound, they were using, I think, like electromagnetic frequencies or something like that to test the conductivity because water is a really good electrical conductor rock not very good at conducting electricity Hmm. and so they were actually able to see the makeup of the different like all the different parts underground and they're using all of that information to help study the plumbing so the way that the geysers work just kind of like how they function but they're also using that to track like That information can be used for understanding how microbes move around and, like, get between different hot springs and things like that, which is really, really cool that they're finally starting to publish on this work that they did a couple years ago. That's really cool. I I wouldn't have... That's really clever, the thing about, like, like using... Uh, the electromagnetic thing to tra- because like water is conductive. Yeah, that wouldn't have been my first thought, and it. But it's so clever. Yeah, well, it, because I saw the um, headline of this article, and I was like, oh yeah, they probably used like ground penetrating radar or whatever, and then it's like electromagnetic instruments from helicopters. <laughs> I was like, that's wild. First of all, right. But second of all, really smart for telling you like, okay, okay, we know what all of these things are made of, and so it's really easy to be able to differentiate between all of these different types of like soil and rock and the water itself. It's all very, very cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I love people that they just like come up with this and then they do it and then we find out really cool things. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's some science for you. Enjoy. (laughs) And, of course, there are, with Yellowstone having more geysers, I think, than anywhere else in the world. I don't think that that's a controversial statement to make. There's a lot of them, so we can't talk about all of them. But I did want to just mention a couple of them, because there's... So I think a lot of people know Old Faithful. It's like the poster child of Yellowstone geysers, which I think is fair in that um, if you are visiting the park, it's really easy to know, like plan your visit around um, because it's so regular. Right. I mean, it's when I when I went there is the one I mm-hmm. saw. I mean, I saw other ones, but I don't remember their names. Right. You know. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing is, like, that's the one that, like, you know its name, so it's really easy to remember when you go visit. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple other geysers in the park. 
there's a lot of geysers in the park and they're all very cool and I don't have time to talk about why all of them are cool individually. But there's a couple of them that are really interesting. So the there's two that I want to talk about. They are what I have dubbed the tall ones <laughs> because they're really mm-hmm. tall. So the first one is Grand Geyser. So this is a fountain geyser, which is, it looks a lot different than I think what a lot of people expect geysers to look like. Um, so with fountain geysers, they look initially oftentimes like a hot spring. They don't have that kind of traditional mound that you would expect with something like Old Faithful. Yeah, it doesn't look like a school project volcano. Yeah. Uh, so Grand Geyser is the tallest predictable geyser in the world, which is really cool. And I, I think one of the things that I really like about it is that it's kind of set back a little bit. And so like when it erupts, you get a lot of that steam beforehand and it makes this like really beautiful, like smoky effect in the trees, which is really, really, I, I really enjoy that about this geyser. And then there's the steamboat geyser, which is another, again, very tall geyser. Is there, like, any correlation between, like, how tall it is and how active it is? Because in my brain, it'd be like, if it's taller, it has more water at a time. And so maybe it is less active because it needs to fill up longer or something. But I don't know. That might be absolute bullshit. <laughs> It feels like that should be true. I don't think that it is. So with Steamboat Geyser, between 2000 and 2014, there were 10 eruptions in that entire 14-year period. And then there weren't any eruptions until 2018. And then in 2018, there were 32. Oh, goodness. <laughs> like 2018 to 2020, there were there was a lot of activity um, and then it stopped again during 2020, which, like, honestly, valid. Yeah, we all stopped a little bit. We all stopped a little bit, but it started up again recently. But yeah, with the the steamboat geyser, um, it's had these kind of periods where it's been very active, and then these periods where it's kind of fallen dormant. There's starting to to be articles come out of, like, concerns, not concerns, but kind of speculation of how the geyser system in the park might be changing. And so kind of going back to that imaging that I think is really going to help us understand, like, why are these changes happening in the park? Mm. And kind of understanding when the geysers change like what's going on because they've been around for a long time but like throughout the park's history we've had lots of different geysers be active and then fall dormant for long periods of time and then suddenly become active again yeah it's really hard i guess when things are on that like geologic time scale to know like Mm -hmm. if it's normal or if something weird is going on right yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's like when a geyser falls dormant for 
30 years. How do you know if it's just done or if you just have to wait another 20 years and then suddenly it decides to start being a geyser again? Yeah, this is wild. I'm reading this article that says gaps between major eruptions for the steamboat geyser anywhere from four days to 50 years. Yeah, and so I think that's one of the cool things is that like we have geysers like Old Faithful where it's like, yeah, it's going to erupt every hour, hour and a half. Um, And then you have the ones like the Steamboat Geyser where it's like kind of just roulette of do you get 50 eruptions in one year or do you get one eruption every 50 years? A total gamble. Yeah, but that is what I have. Um, And we will put um, links to a lot of the sources that we reference for this stuff in the description. So if you want to check any of that out and kind of see what we are looking at to get some of this information, um, it will be there for you. Yeah. So I think that's our episode, right? I think so. We did it. (laughs) We did it. We have our our little outro notes here. Anything we want to plug? Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely do. I'll uh, be sure we include a link for this. But for those of you who are not able to get out to Yellowstone for whatever reason, they do have a webcam set up for um, mostly Old Faithful, but it does catch eruptions from other geysers in that same geyser basin. And it's very fun. It, it's really nice to just kind of like have on as... <laughs> an ambient screen. I love the NPS geyser cam. It's one of my favorites. Absolutely. One of my favorite blaze bowl moments is all just magic in the chat waiting for <laughs> Old Faithful to go off because we're all watching the geyser cam at once. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't have anything else to plug uh at the moment. Uh do you have anything last minute, Nick, that you want to send people to? No, I think I'm all good. Just check out the links we put in the description, learn something new, everything's super neat, highly recommend. For sure, for sure. Oh, I guess I should mention, I don't know if it'll come in handy, um, we do have an email address that I've set up. We may also set up social media accounts, we'll see if that gets used. But if you have questions, comments, anything to say, you can reach us at yellparkspod at gmail.com. Yeah, send us fan mail. Send us your favorite geyser screen cap. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure if we get, like, any fan mail at all, it will be mentioned next episode. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Speaking of, we're trying to do this monthly, right? So far? Yeah. Yeah. With any luck, this will be out in August, and our next episode will be our uh, September episode. We aren't sure about our topic yet. We have a, a couple things, a couple ideas in the air, but we're looking forward to that. We want to acknowledge again that Yellowstone National Park is on land that belongs to the Native American people who lived there for thousands and thousands of years so the three groups or tribes that we found that we'd like to mention are the eastern shoshone the the absolute crow and the tetsoi cheyenne but that is among others and we will have links in our description to uh resources that describe 
the many, many tribes and groups of native people who have who have ties to Yellowstone National Park and its land. And I think that's all for us today on Yell Park's Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Should we do a final Yahoo for the road? I would love to. <laughs> Yahoo! Yahoo! Yahoo!